0: Welcome to Growing E-Commerce. I'm your host, Mike Ryan of Smarter E-Commerce. Today I want to share a trend update for the year so far. First, we'll discuss what Simeon Siegel calls DD2C. That's the way direct-to-consumer businesses have shifted under pressure away from solo digital pure plays to adopt offline storefronts and wholesale partners. It's kind of a reversal or an undoing of the DTC model so far. Then you'll hear my thoughts on the interplay of marketplace business models and retail media networks, and the ways in which Europe differs here from the US market. And lastly, let's have a look at Q1 earnings reports from Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon. Final thought: the one thing all these players have in common is traffic acquisition. Alright, let's get into it. So today I just want to catch up on some of the Things I've been reading, some of the conversations I've been seeing, and, and my thoughts on those topics. And I'm going to touch on a few themes about you know what's, what we've seen in 2022 so far. I definitely want to talk about direct-to-consumer, how that kind of business model and the, the hype around that is, is evolving or devolving. I uh, will talk about D2C and the DD2C movement. Then moving on to what's happening on the retail side and catching up on a similar hyped trend over there with with retail media networks and marketplace models, what's happening there. And lastly, I'll just talk through some recent earning reports that came out at the time of recording last week. And I'm putting that at the end in case you're listening to this dear listener in the distant future. Maybe this stuff is of historical significance to you, or, or maybe it's it's uh, that information is less relevant. But on the other hand, maybe it's kind of interesting as a historical artifact because there's so much uncertainty ahead right now with um, the inflation that we're facing, with uh, the, the war in Ukraine, with the pandemic evolving and seeming to tail off, but no one's quite sure. It's a really interesting time to look at all these themes. So let's start off with this idea of DD2C. Um, and right away, I'm going to credit that phrase to Simeon Siegel. I actually just discovered his, uh, reporting and coverage recently in the last week or two and really interesting guy. Definitely, uh, one of the sharpest observers out there in what's occurring with direct to consumer and, and a lot of topics. And you never know. I, there's, I, it's tricky because a lot of the things that I hear him saying, I've, I've thought myself and I don't know if some of them Are my ideas or I've read them on Twitter or it's, it's just funny the way that opinions kind of form and to what extent maybe, uh, Simeon and his team are opinion leaders, um, or to what extent they're, they're capturing this kind of zeitgeist that's out there that the things that a lot of us are seeing and observing. But as mentioned, really worth checking out his articles and interviews. When I think about direct-to-consumer, I think some important context to add, I mean, there have been people talking about sort of the the death of direct-to-consumer or that this business model or approach is is overhyped for years now, for a longer time. And I guess where it kind of came to a head in more recent history, let's rewind to third quarter 2020, because I think this is where some some challenges started to arise. At the moment, back then, It just looked like e-commerce was was booming. It was. Everything was just on fire. And we saw this reflected in investments. Venture capital in e-commerce was up $1 uh, US dollars in Q3 2020. That's 63% increase year over year. That's a lot of venture capital flowing into the space. And new business formation, entrepreneurship was up over 80% in Q3 2020. So look at those two things going hand in hand, the venture capital flowing in, the businesses forming. And I'm not saying that every one of those was a direct-to-consumer brand, but certainly some of them were. And it just shows that there was already a big hype around direct-to-consumer, and then it, it blew up into a bit of a bubble. And then you can queue up what happened next, the privacy changes made by Apple, the collapse in demand that we've seen over time with the pandemic, uh, where it's things kind of shifted back offline. And broadly speaking, these direct to consumers kind of insurgent brands, they've, they've positioned themselves as digitally native. They've invested heavily in digital acquisition channels and less so in, in physical storefronts. That's been kind of their, their philosophy. And That worked out pretty fine when traffic was cheap to acquire and Facebook was zipping right along, helping products get discovered, helping brands get discovered. And this stuff was readily attributed. You know, I'm not saying that Facebook is no longer helping stuff get found products and brands get discovered, but it, it's harder for people to have confidence in the math around that and the attribution. The, The picture is just a lot fuzzier and. Yeah, also the unit costs. It's about the, the unit costs as well, which have been very volatile and often quite expensive. So it's not such a surprise to see the pendulum swinging the other way a bit. And I guess what bugs me is I see analysts and headlines that are quite harsh toward that business model and toward these, these business owners. Um, I think if anyone might deserve a little bit of blame, it would be perhaps the venture capitalists, but um, everything's so clear in, in hindsight. That's the classic. And it's the case here as well. And I just think these business owners by and large, I don't think they were trying to mislead anybody. They, they were trying to build something. They are trying to build something and sustain something. But nowadays the recognition is definitely, um, shifting it into the idea that, Hey, direct to consumer is is maybe not a business model in and of itself. It's just one distribution channel. It's just one one way of, of operating. And these businesses need to diversify a bit. You run into a problem with these acquisition channels like Facebook in particular, where it can only scale you up to a certain point, right? And the same thing with that single channel, direct-to-consumer channel at large, it can only scale you up to a certain point. Um, now we see that... That wholesale is becoming a lot more uh, popular and attractive as a way to scale. And um, and we see that also physical storefronts, brick and mortar, um, becoming more attractive as well. And I'm a bit more, I would say, optimistic about the wholesale side of things than the, the physical storefronts. But there are two sides to this. Like, Kind of the, the core driving thesis of the direct-to-consumer model, of course, is that you're cutting out the middleman and that there's more profits in this way of operating. That That's why these businesses chose to operate the way they did. It's why venture capitalists got excited. You know, these are all smart people in the room. And again, that's why I think it's, it's easy to be critical uh, of some of these businesses. And maybe some of them do deserve that criticism, but many of them is really honest shot and they're adapting now. So I think that's positive. The reason I find wholesale attractive is that, you know, it's pretty tried and true. And these are companies that they've got the, the infrastructure and the, the logistics in place where they can do this in a scalable manner at, at the profitability that they need. And what we found with direct to consumer is that these businesses didn't have that stuff in place and they underestimated how much it would cost to set that up and, and how much it would, it would eat into their profits to do so. And wholesaling, wholesalers, it's just, it's a tried and true distri- distribution channel. It's nothing new. And of course, there's a value there. So you might say, oh, there's a middleman eating into my profits. Well, that's in exchange for clear value ads as well. So you just have to run the math and see if that makes sense. And when it comes to physical storefronts, I'm a bit more skeptical because, again, I think that there are already uh, folks out there who really excel at physical retailing. And it makes more sense to me to probably um, get involved with those with those operations rather than trying to set up your own operations if uh, you're brand new to this. But can't say that that isn't going to work. And actually, I just talked on the last episode with Sean McGinnis at Kuru Footwear. They're looking into this too. And you can hear his thoughts about what they're thinking of doing and why. You know, he sees an inherent value also. And a physical storefront as being this kind of artifact in the world, this, um, this marketing value of helping to kind of, yeah, concretize this, this brand and make it, make it more tangible to folks. But it's just the way that the story has, has been so far, you know, some of these larger brands, uh, went public suddenly their numbers went public too, of course, uh, and the, the way their books looked wasn't quite the way that people imagined and, Turned into an emperor has no clothes kind of situation. But again, I don't think that direct to consumer movement is over. Some of these businesses probably will, will fail. Um, unfortunately, and others are going to succeed wildly. So it's, it's just as we, as we face the, this tricky environment ahead with inflation, increasingly talk about a recession ahead, a possible recession. We just have to be aware of that. But again, check out what Simeon Siegel has written about this. Um, I love that phrase of his D, D to C. So not like, yeah, it's like anti direct to consumer. Um, the things that are happening out there. And on the one hand, it's the sentiment side, I think. And on the other hand, it's also that these businesses are adopting new practices that were maybe considered counter to, to the way that they imagined they would operate in the past. Um, the idea of, of, Wholesale partnerships or retail sh- partnerships being taboo, the idea that, hey, we can pull this thing off purely in the digital space and we don't need to be in the physical world. I mean, I also discussed this with uh, Brian McBride. You can listen to that a few episodes back. Uh, he's a former CEO of Amazon UK and chairman of ASOS. And he, he felt that these, these brands are probably not going to move into the physical retail world. And back then, I definitely was thinking, yeah, this is a trend that could pick up. And my my core reasoning for that is that even if, let's say that we reach like 20% retail penetration for online sales for e-commerce, let's imagine that online is capturing 20%. That still means that 80% of, of these sales are still happening offline. And that's a big piece of the pie. Yeah. So with 80% of the volume still lying offline, it's again, this question of these boundaries to scale. Do they need to be offline in order to scale up? Um, and, and what's their approach to getting offline? Are they going to do that themselves with their own storefront? Will they do it through partners? So if we want to connect over what's happening on the retailer side with these marketplace models and these retail media networks, I want to come back to that topic about Apple and the privacy changes that they enforced and the way that this is challenged digital attribution. And generally, when we look forward with cookies getting deprecated and yeah, the, the challenges that we expect ahead increasingly on a global scale, not just in Europe, but in, in North America as well. And we'll see which other markets will follow with these strict privacy laws. The question is, how do I attribute my online sales and um, there'll always be a bias toward closely attributed sales. You know, there's another kind of more philosophical question. Why is it so important to me that this stuff is, is attributed? Um, and different people in different parts of the organization will probably have a different approach to that or a different reasoning, but certainly to the chief financial officer, um, they're going to have a, a quite a reasonable bias toward attributed revenue. And to close the loop here, bring it over to marketplaces. Um, and retail media networks this is yeah an end effect uh, pretty privacy safe and closed loop attribution because um, at least when you're talking about these these on-site ads in the retail media networks and so that makes it very attractive and I think if we do get into an environment where we're looking at more of a recession um, and this slowdown in demand the, like on the one hand we're just kind of returning to pre-pandemic levels, um, and on the other hand, like if we're talking about e-commerce share of revenue, for example, on the other hand, if we're talking about inflation um, and, and geopolitical uncertainty, things look a bit more challenging. But in a context like that, in that environment, then of course, having a, a close, tight attribution can make your channel more attractive, and it can, by default, make these retail media networks pretty attractive to participate in. If, the, if people feel that the targeting is better, the performance better, and they can get easy, clear measurements, then this is going to be a driving factor of that for sure. Boston Consulting Group has assessed the whole retail media network space at a hundred billion US dollars annual revenue. So that's quite a, um, a market opportunity right there. And the other thing that we know about retail media networks so far, is that they're characterized by these high margins at or above 50% margin on there. So this is something, again, that makes them pretty attractive for, for everyone involved. And already in the US, we're seeing that ad spend on retail media networks is uh, about 17% and forecast for 19% of, of ad spend next year. So that's pretty significant. Amazon is, of course, dominating the whole market. Amazon's retail media network, and that's sized at about 26 billion um, US dollars. You see different estimates out there. And then there's kind of this long tail of other networks like these large US retailers, Walmart, Target, Kroger. My assessment is that the EU is a bit lagging here, and it's a that means that it's a growth opportunity. Uh, We've certainly we see marketplaces increasingly coming into place in Europe. And this is a great kind of first step to then leverage into a retail media network. I mean, the marketplace model has an inherent value arguably in the form of, for example, getting some range expansion or, you know, focusing on yeah, product depth through onboarding sellers, um, just that you can serve the needs of more customers on your owned property. If you're that retailer, and then if you can then monetize that by retail media, It becomes a pretty interesting case you know there's always a push and pull with marketplaces um, and and ad networks too any any of the both of these depend on these network effects where you need to kind of concentrate a sufficient pool of both supply and demand and it gets called different things like a critical mass challenge or a flywheel kind of problem or flywheel opportunity to look at from the other side. It's very hard to get a flywheel started uh, to get that initial momentum. But once you do, it's kind of self-sustaining. And by the way, I discussed this a little bit in an episode with Mihai Popescu, if you wanna check that out, Uh, a couple episodes. He's over at Esprit right now, but he's worked at marketplaces in the past. And the, the topic here in Europe is, I think it gets even a little bit harder. So there's this critical mass challenge, right? Where you basically need to have enough sellers on there that it's attractive for consumers to visit this place as a destination. And you also, on the other hand, you need enough consumers attracted to this space that it's attractive for sellers to get on, bo- to get on board. That's if you're looking for classic kind of scaling effects, but with a retail media network in place, you might not need the the scale per se. Uh, there might be an opportunity to monetize uh, further through the retail media. But the other challenge in EU is that we're generally more fragmented than the U.S. market. Uh, still, we see some some big players out there like Zalando, Bull.com. I think one thing that was interesting for me is that Bowl.com partnered with a North American player, Packview, when they launched their marketplace. And this is not surprising because, uh, of course, the the North American market just seems to be a lag ahead of the EU market here. So I think that's a pattern that we could see repeating that these North American firms are well situated to kind of crack the EU market due to their prior experience. And generally the EU market, so it's less dominated by Amazon. There are more local players out there like a bull.com, for example, sort of the the Amazon of Netherlands, you could say similarly, like in Poland, you'll see Allegro kind of the Amazon of, of Poland and there are different uh, platforms out there like this. But yeah, although Amazon is not that dark, that dominant market force and there could be more opportunity that way. On the other hand, it's, yeah, it's just so fragmented. So I think there'll be these strong geographic players. There'll be strong vertical players like Zalando and fashion. And it's, it's just going to be a matter of, uh, Seeing which of these companies can get to the right size, that they're big enough, this whole model makes sense for them. A last comment on my side re- related to retail media networks. I think it's, it's quite interesting to see that Google Cloud launched a, a new retail search function lately. And to me, you know, I, I just have to ask uh, the question about why Google develops a technology like that. You know, They have quite a clear kind of value proposition there that a lot of on-site search experiences for retailers, it's not good. And this is damaging um, their conversion rates. It's damaging the customer experience. Customers might not return to those websites after having a bad experience. And so it's clear that Google has a confidence in search and they can deliver Google quality search. That's what they claim to do here. And that then this runs to their cloud infrastructure. So there's a, a financial model for them there. On the other hand, I also have to ask myself, isn't it kind of good for Google if people have bad searches on retail sites? Because then those retail sites are, are less likely to capture a share of, of product search because those commercial search queries, that high intent commercial search is so important for Google. And they already see Product searches getting siphoned away by Amazon. And then they would be kind of, you know, arguably facilitating that more product search gets siphoned away by individual retailers. And so I don't know what their strategy is here or how they run the figures on this. Maybe they don't see it as such a threat. But I think another thing could be that retail search and maybe some additional features coming from Google cloud could be viewed as infrastructure for retail media networks. And that's a different case. If it's just just the search engine, uh, like just a retailer's on-site search running over Google Cloud infrastructure, I don't think the case is that compelling. But then if Google is able to use their infrastructure with Google Marketing Platform, for example, to facilitate that there's paid search occurring and and retail media placements occurring on these sites and they view high-quality search as a prerequisite for that, I think the the calculus kind of starts to look different And this is one possible explanation, because there's a lot of people playing for that hundred billion uh, market that that BCG mentions, like Criteo, for example, trying to sort of reinvent themselves a bit. And I think this could be a big strategic initiative for Google now and in the next couple of years that they can get these retail media networks running on their infrastructure on Google Marketing Platform, Google Cloud this could help offset, let's say that they start seeing revenue losses the way that, that Facebook did. Facebook saw like this crippling, what was it? I can't remember. Don't quote me, but I think it was like a 10 billion revenue loss um, last year from, from Apple's privacy changes. If we view retail media networks as more privacy safe, and just generally a strong growing trend, and Google can get a piece of that pie, then it can really offset potential revenue, revenue losses that they might face through privacy initiatives or whatever else is coming ahead. Increased scrutiny on them right now from, from the U S looking to break up their advertising kind of monopoly. And also in the EU, there's new scrutiny about the way that they send kind of low quality spammy ads to their search partners. Yeah. So it's an interesting spa- space to watch. So while we're on the topic of Google or their parent company, Alphabet, let's transition over to the recent earning reports for, for Q1 2022. When we talk about Alphabet or Google, YouTube was a, was a particular challenge there. At least that's, that's what the pundits are saying. They faced slowdowns on video consumption from the pandemic. People are kind of returning to other sorts of activities now that lockdowns are by and large over and also What I think might even be more significant is increasing competition from TikTok, uh, taking away a lot of that social video traffic. So in the end, their YouTube ad revenue was off by like 640 million US dollars. And I don't know. I I don't view it maybe that critical. I think that considering, uh, everything that's going on with the, with the pandemic, the way that played out. And I, I think. The picture still looks pretty solid for Google there. Their traffic acquisition costs continue to rise. So that's a bit concerning. But if we also look at their click growth, we can, we can have a discussion about that. Like in Q1 2020, so that was arguably pre pandemic. I mean, it was at the very kind of the the very edge of the pandemic. Their clicks were up 12% year over year. And that is bear in mind, that's their clicks across all their advertising. Inventory. So not just Google search or display or anything, but that's, or YouTube. That's, that's everything. And then they had this massive growth quarter in Q1 2021. That was kind of a pleasant surprise for a lot of people with, with plus 25% up a quarter. You know, I remember in late 2020 thinking, that there could be already kind of a, a, a whiplash or the pendulum swinging the other way on e-commerce and on digital advertising back then. But the pandemic just lasted a lot longer than we expected. And uh, so they still saw a really superb growth. Um, and now this quarter, they were up 16% on click growth. So, which you can, you know, this is the, the root cause of their ad growth is it, are these clicks. So it's still better than their 2020 number and Uh, I think, I think it's pretty solid. What the next thing to look at is what about the cost per clicks? And that's another topic. We're seeing that cost per clicks are up 8% in Q1 this year. And this is a factor because it just tests how much advertisers are are willing to spend for these clicks. 8% might not sound like the most, but uh, for, for some context here, like across 2020, I, 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 just gra- I looked at their their past earning statements for uh like 2019 through present and and through their cost per click growth into into a sheet quick it's pretty interesting to see i mean across 2020 cpc's were were down and you know you could expect about a 15% discount in 2020 on cost per click relative to to 2019 and then last year in 2021 they really overcompensated that change and they started growing. Um, So not just in relative terms, but in absolute terms, the CPCs were getting a lot more expensive. Particularly, the quarter to watch there was the second quarter last year where they spiked 31% uh, year over year. So it got a lot more expensive at that point to advertise on Google um, or with Google. And I think the next quarter to look at will be Q2 this year. Because there was a tremendous growth last year and, and let's see what it's going to look like this year. Right now we're seeing, you know, 8% on top of the, the kind of overcompensated or more expensive CPCs from last year. And it's just a question about at what point might this start to hurt them if, if it's getting expensive. So Amazon, uh, they faced a challenging quarter and <laughs> to me, it's a little funny. I mean, the things that they faced things things that have been discussed, they faced excess capacity that they built up for the pandemic. And so, you know, the counter side of that is that consumer demand uh, tailed off a little bit. That's what makes the capacity excess. Of course, they go hand in hand. And then the third factor that was discussed is uh, inflationary effects. And so then by most assessments, they missed their ad growth projection too, by the way, if we're talking about advertising. But <laughs> the part I find funny or or It's such an Amazon problem—is this idea of excess capacity? Because I can't think of a lot of retailers uh, out there who, where I would really say their excess capacity is a problem right now. Supply chain is a problem everyone's talking about. Getting good people, hiring people, is a problem that everyone's talking about. Retaining people, and so then to see Amazon facing excess capacity, it, it just shows you how big it is, what they've built, and and how. Uh, aggressively lay plan for the future that when, when most people are facing shortages, Amazon, uh, suffered some profitability problems because of excess capacity. So yeah, that's, that's a very, very Amazon thing from my perspective, which, which kind of brings me to to Facebook, but in a very different light. And this, this reminds me. So back in episode one, the first episode of this podcast, I interviewed my former boss, uh, Steve Scheinkopf. He's the, CEO at Yale Appliance in in Boston, Massachusetts. And I saw a great article from Steve last week where he was talking about challenges that he's facing in the supply chain right now. And also actions that he's taking to kind of protect and ensure his capacity. So what I found really, a couple of things that were really interesting in that article, there's a lot, but he mentioned just how much warehouse real estate has been snapped up by Amazon in the area. You know, Massachusetts, Southern Massachusetts. Also, how much, if we get back to the venture capital investments in e-commerce, uh, how much real estate has been snapped up by venture capitalists and banks, Uh, you know, just the, these, these warehousing real estate has become so, so valuable, such a hot commodity. I think. Last year, a lot of us saw these charts about uh, the shipping containers and how explosive the growth in, in pricing was there. But just to use a concrete example, what Steve saw, he mentioned that Yale bought two warehouses. And this was a few years ago because I was I was still working at Yale back then. So this was about five or six years ago. And we were just opening up one of the new warehouses. And that cost them $5 million. So that was, let's say, five years ago. Uh, and now in 2022, Yale is... Uh, made an agreement to buy a new warehouse for 45 million. So that's a 900% increase in, in just a handful of years. And I think it shows you how insane it is what's occurring in, in the, in the market. And yeah, getting back to that thing about Amazon having a capacity problem. So that just kind of triggered a thought in my mind. I mean, one thing I've noticed about Amazon in the past years is that they're, uh, profit per employee has been kind of declining, and that could be thought of in a couple different ways. Making a long-term play to have this talent and to have flex capacity, and also it's the kind of work that those employees are doing. But I want to switch over on that note to to Meta or Facebook. Their report. I mean, their headcount is up twenty eight percent year over year. So th- this, to me, was one of the most striking things about the report, and I think. Their headcount had exploded already a bit last year, but um, it's up 28% year over year. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think a lot of that headcount is busy programming the metaverse. And I I don't know how history will judge me on this, but Facebook and meta, they've got such big problems right now. and And Zuckerberg is talking about metaverse as a project for the 2030s. It's it's definitely a big bet. It's a very big bet. To me, I'm just curious about their their bridging strategy to get that far, uh, because <laughs> I think they they kind of are a little too far sighted here, and they might be missing the things that are right in front of their nose. You know, they had such a bad Q4 last year; it was historically bad, and the fact that they just had moderate performance this quarter was kind of favorable for them, or viewed favorable, because. It, they, they just have these, these fundamental problems. I think they've got problems retaining advertisers. They've got problems retaining users. I mean, not last quarter we saw that they struggled with their active users and uh, I think they returned to some flat growth again and not negative growth. But I would just, I, I'm so skeptical of this whole metaverse bet to be really honest. I, I think I'm not saying I'm skeptical of the technology at large, but if Facebook is going to be the company to really pull this off, I would be pretty surprised. I think it's going to be somebody a lot more agile with a lot less baggage. But yeah, those are my my notes for for trends that I'm looking at right now and and things that I'm reading about and learning about. And I just want to maybe wrap it up on one thought. I think the the challenge that that everybody has in common in the end is is just uh yeah, traffic acquisition if we look at the direct consumer businesses. Uh, it's a, it's a question about how they're going to acquire customers and in an online context, how they're going to acquire that traffic because, you know, they have to convince people to go to their brand website for their product. And generally there's a sentiment that consumers want to do one stop shopping. And this is why Amazon is such a value proposition. And likewise with the, the retail media networks and these marketplaces as these larger retailers look to, uh, explore new business models again it comes down to convincing people to come to their property and same with with google here facing their their rising traffic acquisition costs it's just everybody is in this big huge competition for eyeballs and attention and wallets right now and it's the it's the big ones it's the small ones this is a tense environment for everybody so i think now is definitely the right time to to keep thinking about acquisition Retaining customers and users is is a topic as well. But the people right now who are winning at at acquisition are going to be the people who are winning in the longer term. That's my my take on it. But I want to thank you for listening. And I'm lining up some really interesting guests for uh, the next episode. So don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast. And I hope to check in with you again next time. Thanks so much for listening to Growing E-Commerce. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce. To learn more, visit smarter ecommercecom